I'd just like to comment on that because I think it's a very beautiful way of thinking about things. And when I look at some of the research where they bring people together of uh, opposite political views and they give them a task to do, and then they ask, then they reveal that one's an anti-choice and one's an anti-this, and they find out after they've done a task together, and then they add the, uh, the, of the possible polarization, which wasn't mentioned before. And then they're asked, would you like to go have a beer with this person? They all said, yes because they had this experience of doing something together that was either trivial or meaningful. It didn't even seem to matter. And I have a feeling that that's because I think we're kind of wired to relate to each other. Given the right circumstances, it should be possible, right? And what you're saying is here's a very particular circumstance, developing a, a going forward, I've been typing while you were talking, um, uh, going somewhere in common where there's a common goal and you're moving forward, well, you're bonding. You cannot not bond under that kind of thing. And so now I'm holding this in one hand and in the other hand, I'm thinking, but there's a lot of people who believe that a problem has to be solved. Mm -hmm. And see what you're not talking about was a problem. You're talking about how do we come together and have a common goal and move forward. And there's going to be a lot of people who will be angry about that because they want a problem to be addressed. And I think it'd be interesting to, to explore and discover how do you get from we have to face this problem from anybody's point of view and everybody's point of view that recognizes it as a problem to a point where uh, can we go on a journey together yeah. towards a common goal. I really feel is that this conversation is much more around interpersonal racism. And we're looking at interpersonal racism, we're looking at institutional racism, and we're looking at systemic racism. And systemic racism is, it's in the system. It's the fact that Black people are not seen as having contributed to civilization. It's the fact that, wow, we just got the first in the United States vice president who was a woman and who is black and who is South Asian. And you have all of these girls say, oh, it's the first time I see it. So it's possible and I'm aspiring to it. The impact of what you see on television and books and history in school is that we are not seen as able to, we're not even seen as belonging to people who contribute to and make things better. It's not even possible. And the systemic racism is also that you go to schools that are inferior, where you don't see yourself as being able to achieve, uh, where when you go to a job today, a white man makes 100 cents. And so if you're making half of what they make for the same job, which means that within organizations, you have already managed to get the same title We've seen when it's with white women and men in the uh, on television programs, it would come out, wow, you had two anchor people sitting there, one in one chair, one in the other, one gets 30% less than the other. On what basis? Well, he's a man. To pay for schools, to pay for housing. Um, we talk about redlining, which is if you're Black, if the neighborhood is Black, it is considered a risk. And so the banks are going to charge you more money to buy a house there. Yeah. And you have houses in the United States, in Minnesota, that still have covenants. 
which means that in your deed, it says this house will not be sold to a black person or a Native American. That's what my deed says. Is my, my deed, my house was uh, built in 1932. And I don't know if in California on those deeds, they can never erase something. They can just strike it out. So it says this house will never be sold to a black person or Mexican person. And so you have this level of systemic exclusion. You have this level of economic lynching. Mm -hmm. um, you have had this very systemic brutality. We talk about police violence, but you could talk about mobs that attacked black cities that were prosperous, mobs that would attack a black business that was prosperous and burn it down and loot it. And, and this has happened in the United States since the 1600s. And the last time it happened was recently, but it's not out there. So when you talk about ignorance, I can see how is it that you got 70 million white people who do not know that they are brutal in depriving Black bodies and Native American bodies of the livelihood, of the fruit of their labor, of education, and many times point blank of their lives. So that would be a question that I would have for, for Steve and for, for Shelley, which is do white people feel that brutalization? Are they aware? Of you know, half the things we covered in your course. I it was were never on my radar screen, never on my radar screen. Um, and it started from the instant you started the course when you introduced yourself and told us about your background. And I went, holy shit. And I, I mean, my whole reaction was, it, we, we even though we had spent an evening together and got to know each other prior to this, um, I thought, I know nothing about the quality of your experience day to day going up, growing up and living your life just because you're Black. All I ever was aware of was, oh, you did this, you went here, you went there, how interesting. And it would never have crossed my mind to ask me, how was your life different than mine because you grew up black? It, it would never have crossed my mind. Mm. And so again, that's the interpersonal level, but on a systemic level, we're all like this. All us white people are like this. We have no idea. Unless it's put into it in front of our faces. And, you know, I, I really think in terms of a systemic transition point, when you add uh, Amy Cooper, the Amy Cooper incident to the George Floyd uh, horrific murder, you got this thing that happened. And I think that is a systemic thing. That is like a, a, an awareness that suddenly emerged when these two things came together. And I also think they were possible because of Me Too a couple of years earlier. And uh, Me Too is a movement that put up its hand and said, some things are not okay. And I compare it to feminism in the last century. Feminism basically at a philosophical level said, we as women want a seat at the table. And we made some progress. There were some seats and there were some tables and it was mainly white, but there was a bit of progress. But I think, and it was a toward uh, goal-oriented kind of thing. We want a seat at the table. And what happened with Amy Cooper who weaponized race 
you know, in such a clear, visible, undeniable way, along with what happened to uh, George Floyd, in the context of Me Too, which was, hey, we will not allow this to ever happen again, never again, sort of like the Jewish slogan after the war. It was a never again. And I think it took a couple of years because it's not like we had nothing like this happening be years before. It's not like these were new events, but in the context of all this happening, you see culture being shaped, you see awareness being shaped. And I think that is systemic. And I think one of the things we could think about is how do we leverage these very pivotal, pivotal events that people are still experiencing and still aware of um, to make a more collective difference. What happened was a more collective outrage because we realized everybody's dealing with this. And, and in terms of men, well, there's a whole crap load of men doing this. And that the people who aren't doing this are an exception, not, you know, so that this, this I think this was this realization. And I think it, it unleashed, it's a bit like a volcano. It unleashed all this, and that, that's what happened. And in, in a sense, uh, George Floyd and Amy Cooper unleashed this volcano of awareness and, and outrage. So I, I hear you when you say release this volcano. I mean, I definitely know because all of a sudden I said, okay, I'm going to devote time and energy to bringing white people together to transform the racism. So I'm on a mission, right? And even with what has happened with George Floyd, how many people who I know who are coaches and therapists in helping professions where one would think that they would be open to saying, I should look at this part of myself. They don't want to see it. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to know it. And it's hard to keep it. You know what I heard in my head today? I went, oh, I'm meeting Kathleen and uh, Steve about the racism thing. You know what? I got a lot of stuff on my plate. I heard that go through my head. Because, uh, and, and here's the bad thing, I think. To keep this going, you have to maintain a certain level of outrage about it. Now think of the cost of outrage personally and collectively, because you don't control a volcano, right? It just sort of blows up. Oh, I'm gonna go the next step. And you know, and this is this is a delicate step. Um, how do I Keep the outrage. I can tell my life story as middle to upper middle class, African-American woman, educated, I've traveled. Uh, in my family, um, people were very much into civil rights. Um, I have an uncle who was mayor of Chicago for five minutes. Okay. I can also tell you my life story of they didn't want black people in the neighborhood. They wouldn't give a little black child milk when I was in school. We desegregated neighborhoods and people didn't want you there and they can yell and shout and throw stones at little children, eight years old, six years old. And your parents decide 
to put their precious children in that situation in the name of the race. And every black person that you know, and you can sit down and talk to them, okay, do you know an African-American man who has been stopped by the police, has been searched by the police, who has been scared that they were gonna kill him? That scared? Yes. So how do we live with that in a society that does that to us? How do, how do white Americans live in a society that is so brutal, that has no problem putting seven bullets at the back of a man? And I heard all the people who justify, well, he shouldn't move, he shouldn't, seven bullets in the back. What were you scared of? They can explain it. They can justify it. So, well, Kathleen, so this is part of the volcano. Okay, so I want to I want to make a meta comment here, and that's why I sent that little email. I think we need to zoom out and think. Yeah. There's all this emotion and everything, but what are we trying to do? Why Why are we trying to do it? Like, what is our global purpose here? Because as soon as we get into it, all of us are getting emotional and we need to tell our stories. Maybe that's part of the journey. But what are we doing this for? And why are we doing this? What purpose? And I think we need to zoom out past all the emotion and the history and go, well, what's the greatest purpose we could actually accomplish? And then look at how do we do that? And I'm still not clear on what it is we're trying to do here. Uh, change white people's attitude I don't like that's not enough for me like it's, it's just such a big impossible nebulous thing. Um, I think we need to be much clearer and cleaner on our purpose, and I think the emotion can help us identify that. If we don't get lost in it. I'm not in total agreement with you Shelley. Uh, and here's why I do you know um, you, you probably. Uh, no, Thich Nhat Hanh, right? No, sorry, what? Thich Nhat Hanh. He's a Vietnamese Buddhist priest. No, Viet I do not. Actually. No. He was, you know, he's kicked out of Vietnam by both sides because during the war, he and his monks would just go rebuild and, and they were kicked out. He, he was actually really connected with Martin Luther King and, and he was in, he's been in France for, uh, what 40 years and he he's now severely stroked he's I think he's 95 but uh, so he, he went back to Vietnam uh, uh, he's been saying for 30 years the next Buddha will come not as an individual but as a community so to me when I hear you ask that question of course it's the question that I usually ask but my answer is, I think all these things that are happening simultaneously, Me Too, Black Lives Matter, environmental crisis, are, are all related. And there is this seismic shift to consciousness being sort of located in one part of the system, which has been basically, you know, white Christian male straight to, to consciousness being a community of many, many different voices. So you're saying, you know, with the Me Too and the feminist movement, women are saying, we want our voice at the table. 
we want our place at the table. And, you know, Black Lives Matter, you know, right here is we, we just want, we want you to stop killing us. And, and we want just, we want a place that we want our lives to matter. So maybe I'm thinking the solution actually is partly to allow all these different voices to not try to prematurely get one single answer, but but to be able to listen. Like to me, what, what I'm, I'm looking to do is listen to what you're saying, uh, listen to what Ricky was saying, listen to what Kathleen's saying, listen to what I'm saying, and just hold them all in the same space because I, I don't think we know what the right question is or if the solution can be generated from a single question. Mm. Yeah. So these types you know, of- it's funny, I don't feel that's in disagreement with me. I, I feel that you've taken the question in a way, and although I don't care if you disagree, and zoom, like, and really zoomed it out and said, okay, there is a seismic shift going on. And I, I, you know, I made it a bit, a bit more linear, but I think you're right. It's not all that linear. It's kind of many things and many people happening at the same time. Uh, maybe it's just a bubble and we need to go and it goes where it needs to go. Right. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I think um, I when you were talking about the different events, COVID-19 was also something that created an environment for this to happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, it created an environment in the positive sense that people said, wow, we can change because we just locked down and <laughs> no one thought we could all lock down that fast in so many places in the world. And, and also in the dramatic way, because COVID-19 hits poor brown bodies dramatically more. There's more death among poor brown bodies and Native American bodies than there are uh, in the, the white uh, communities. So what are we going to do to say there's an environment, there's a context, and, and we talk about their moments. And sometimes we say this is a watershed moment. There are moments in time where it's open and it can move and then it closes back down. So we're still at a moment where it's open. And we don't know how long that, that openness is gonna be, that, that, that crack, that um, how, how can we get enough light into the system? Light in terms of uh, ability to see, but light in terms of getting rid of some of the stress and the trauma, lightening it up. That there's an possibility and openness to say, oh, the way we've done it before, we want to do it differently. And yes, on one level, I'm going to lose something, but on another level, I'm going to gain something. And, and that's what I'm interested in. And this is what I try and compose in, in, a, in a program, in a journey, is how how can you just open it up? Just, just allow some light in. Just, just allow something to come into the system that's going to move around because it's a profound change on an interpersonal level and on a systemic level. 
to create a racially just society. We've never done that. It hasn't existed. So how do we even imagine what it's going to be like? So maybe really one of the important parts of the solution is when questions like that are raised, you hear many people talking in response to that question. That it's not like, oh, okay, now us white people have to figure out what's the answer to that question. But, you know, I'm thinking, I, I, like all of us, I'm sure, you know, it's just the cacophony of crises that, you know, to me, this is the most stressful year of my 65. You know, uh, of, and I grew up in the you know, 60s and late in San Francisco. But, uh, you know, I've been thinking just in terms of my sort of skill set, what could I, what could I possibly in my own small way contribute? And when I see, I see everybody's talking and nobody's listening. And, and the speaking is really messy, unavoidably messy. So when you have black voices and female voices and people of color and gay uh, voices and saying for fucking hundreds of years, we have been brutalized. It's not gonna be a polite academic discussion. And, but you know, what I experienced and I'm, I, I imagine you guys would agree within five words out of a person's mouth, somebody else starts objecting. Somebody else starts like, yeah, but, yeah, but. Well, and I just had that happen on my Facebook feed. In the end, I decided to take the whole thing down. I said, uh, you know, the whole Trump era has been like living with an abusive husband. Uh, you never know what's normal and you lose your sense of what's real. And then, and I kept asking people to stop calling each other names. Just, can you just tell us what you're thinking about it? You know, and, and uh, it just got ridiculous. Yeah, well, interesting. Just got laid on, on an email that she sent me. They were talking about that, you know, sort of predictable from that context that Trump, if he was like an abusive husband or an abusive father, just up the ante. You know, and uh, it, uh, I mean, having grown up with a violent father, that made a lot of sense. Yes, I had a husband like that who was a violent alcoholic. So I know what it's like to be in that circumstance. Yeah. And, and it's very interesting that if you talk about this moment and um, racism and you say, well, it would be good if it was an academic discussion. Well, how long have we had an academic discussion? Well, we don't hear it and we don't feel it. And I know that you can have a peaceful demonstration that's black with senior citizens in the front row and mothers with their small children and the police will attack. And you can have a demonstration with a lot of white guys with AK-47 shouting and screaming and insulting the police and they don't attack. So what is it that happens inside the police force in different cities that 
an old black person, a child, is a danger to me and I need to pepper spray them. But a man, a white man with a machine gun standing in my face and shouting at me is not a danger to me. So I'm just wondering what it would be and, and Shelly, I'm sort of also thinking about this uproar that, you know, that flashed un unexpectedly uh, on your Facebook page. What if there was, you know, I've been thinking uh, a lot about the truth and reconciliation mm. groups that Bishop Tutu generated. Which what, we have a lot of in Canada around um, Aboriginal yeah. issues. Yeah, and how, how do you think that worked out in Canada? Um, I think it ran out of steam because for the last five years, there has been some kind of process to find out what happened to all the missing and murdered Aboriginal women and girls. And they even eventually had a whole big commission with great funding to look into it. And it all fell to pieces. I personally believe what happened to those women and girls is that our national police force who police most of the rural areas has killed them because they do it to their own women. And nobody wants to talk about that. So like I have often posted about that. And it hasn't gone anywhere. And I think the reason it hasn't is because our national police are complicit, if not the perpetrators. They've been known to take drunk um, or stoned Aboriginal people out of town and dump them in the snow in the wintertime where they, where they die of exposure. They have been known, there's been a class action suit for over like 1500 women who worked for the RCMP for sexual harassment and sexual uh, aggression uh, that actually ruined their careers. So it's not a big stretch in my opinion to think who is perpetrating all these mysterious disappearances and murders of Aboriginal women and girls. They're out by themselves in these cop cars. What are they doing? And it's- How long, how long did those, uh, did they call them Truth and Reconciliation? Um, we had Truth and Reconciliation Commissions going across the country um, as a methodology of bringing victims of crime together with perpetrators of crime to have them talk. And that, that lasted, there was about probably a period of about 10 years where a lot of that was happening. And it was based on our own Aboriginal models. Yeah. And, and you think, uh, by and large, um, it was a positive process in the first period it was a positive process because i mean i mean what people call extreme left in america is our middle of the road politician politics yeah. you know i mean it's like but what has happened since trumpism is you know alberta in canada is a bit like very right-wing texas like the, and but they've all come out of the closet and people are calling these kinds of things extreme left-wing things now. So all this labeling, um, as opposed to treating a problem with a solution that might help, uh, ha has happened. So it's gotten harder. Yeah. Maybe in, you know, the thing about today is that there's such an accelerated time so that something like a therapy model or any sort of approach has a shelf life. And I, I don't, 
mean to talk about that cynically, but maybe instead of thinking, well, we have the Truth and Reconciliation Committee that will, what will be the forever method. Maybe we think, okay, we're gonna think maybe we have these things every couple of years. And, and we realize when we start seeing signs that, that the, the generative dimensions of it are flagging, we begin to raise the question, what other collective ways can we begin to raise these questions? And, and there are things like what Ricky was, was saying and what you were saying, Shelley, think in terms of what positive questions to bring people together for a positive future. I think, and, and what I think you hear me and Kathleen saying, I'm not saying we're just, any of us are disagreeing, but you can't just focus on positive futures because you, you have this, this, this shadow stuff that's so fucking deep in the bodies and, and in the laws and, and so forth. But maybe there's a sense of where, where there is not one solution. Yeah. And I'm also trying to think right now, it's how, how can I find a way to put in place a process that will help people to reduce, to transform. I don't like the word to reduce the racism, I say it's to transform it because it's an enormous amount of energy in white bodies and black bodies. And if you could transform it, that I think that would also help. Kathleen, sweetie, I think you did it in your course. I don't know that you need to go back to the drawing board rather than hone something as you get better at creating the kinds of experiences that are transformative. I mean, um, I couldn't believe the number of people who spent so much time crying in our in our group. And, I, in, I, and I, maybe I just don't do that so often, but it, I personally found incredibly deep uh, touching in an incredibly deep way. And I think you should continue doing this. I think it's um, just because you don't hit the whole problem of racism is no reason in my mind to, to stop moving forward. And I think as Stephen says, there's maybe there's this collective moment and you're contributing to it. And wouldn't it be cool if we could attract more people who touch more people? I mean, one of the things that happened for me as a result is I'm doing a series, uh, preparing a series of lectures for Bayer, which are going internationally. And I haven't quite convinced them yet, but I wanted them to do a series. Oh, can't hear you. Am I gone? Are you gone? Oh, what, what's Bayer? Can you hear me? Oh, Bayer, Bayer Pharmaceuticals. Oh, Bayer, okay. Um, I, I'm working for their, uh, international issue management part and they're providing lectures in the company and I thought it would be great for them to have a series called food for thought about you know some of the big issues of our time and because these are philosophical people who actually are trying to do something well I haven't quite convinced them yet but I wouldn't have even have thought of that had I not taken uh, Kathleen's course where um, and, and I mean, you've, you've motivated me to think about how do I include these kinds of elements in the conversations I have and in, and in the trainings that I offer, and how do I do that, right? And I would say, keep asking these questions, but keep on doing what you're doing. I think it was great, it's great. yeah. Well, well 
understood, Kathleen, also, but correct me if I'm wrong, Kathleen, that one of your interests is how to create more of a collective where each of us is sort of holding these questions personally and professionally in our own way so that you know, you're transforming racism classes and whatever else is connected to that come out of that. But it begins to inform, you know, uh, actively uh, a significant dimension of my work and of Shelley's work and of other people's work. And and I think, you know, for me, that's what I'm just sitting with the question. I, I'm used, Shelley, Shelley, I'm, I'm used to having answers. You know, it's like, okay, blah, 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 divine, divine this, blah, blah, blah. So it's like, you know, perform, you know, get the question, be out in front of everybody. But I think, you know, partly I, I trying to go for the quick answer is an anachronism for what's happening now. It's sort of like sitting with these questions and, and partly realizing you know, as this white suburban male kid, you know, who's who's never really faced any significant barriers, you know, just because, uh, you know, of of the group I was in, you know, um, I, I I need to shut up more than I need to talk, I think. But I also think that it's possible what what i would like to offer kathleen is my willingness to do things like what we're doing as a way to to continue to talk about these things with the question of whether each of us can have a commitment to um bring this in into into what we're putting out into the world and i to me, I need to feel it in a deeper way, not in terms of, okay, now we come to the ending racism part of our program, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it feels like, and, and again, this is where the, the simultaneity of Me Too and environment and Black Lives Matter and people of color uh, and Muslim uh, and the rise of anti-Semitism is that the, these are all, I think, happening simultaneously because they're part of the same deep seismic underlying transformation. So we've asked a, a lot of questions today and talked about um, a lot of what's happening individually and collectively. I'm trying to do a summary here, help me. Well, you start the summary, that's good. And um, one of the things that I realize I don't know a lot about that you've made an analogy to, and I suspect you've had more conversations, is the analogy of racism is kind of like an addiction. And I think what you were saying is because it's so deeply unconscious and has to rise to the surface, is that what I, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that? Yeah, and I think it also allows you easy to see the collective you know, when we see now, not only addiction, but, you know, I mean, we, we know that, you know, Irish Catholic people tend to be very susceptible to depression and alcoholism and also schizophrenia on the pathology test, but that's just really, it means 
magical thinking. There are leprechauns. <laughs> That's literally <laughs> what it means. <laughs> so uh, I, I think, you know, like when Martin Luther King, when, when he said there are these three uh, um, ca cancers that are on the American soul, uh, racism, poverty, and militarism. Mm. And to that, you know, I would add sexism and misogyny. But, but these are collective sort of things that we're born into. And, you know, when I teach about like negative habits or addiction, you know, we always talk and using, you know, Robert in the NLP idea of positive intention, mm -hmm. that when people are using, they have an intention that they're trying to fulfill some human intention. Like, uh, you know, I want to be feel safe. I want to feel warm. I want to connect. Uh, and and so addiction can happen to good people and it has a positive intention in it but then people when they feel they can't realize that positive attention through human connection they start being more susceptible to these non-human relationships to fulfill it and I think that's how white people got inducted into uh, uh, racism. You know, uh, we have this sort of, we, we don't know if we're going to be able to make a living. Well, if you just enslaved, you know, all those black people, then you could, you know, you, you, you can make a lot of money, you know, getting all those people to, 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 to do all the labor free. Um, once you start doing that, you know, people say, for example, about sexual violence, it's not about sex, it's just about power. And I, you know, at, at the risk of sounding politically incorrect, I think it is, I think it is a, a dimension of sexuality. Um, and, I want to totally agree with you, totally yeah. agree with you. I think the people who only think it's about power have no idea about men's sexuality. That's what I think. And I think that's true about racism too. And, and it's so amplified what by the European white male that gets amplified, that, that gets squared when you come into America, that basically this sense of power and money is, is the way to have a good human life. And, and, you know, we, we can't just do that straightforwardly, but if, if we dominate women, women are our property, you know, legally, you know, the, you know, it wasn't till what, 20 years ago in a lot of states that you couldn't rape your wife. There was, it wasn't legally possible. Mm. So, uh, and, and we, we got into, if we can just exploit black people, then we can use them as a projection, we can use them as free labor. And, and then the violence that you have to do creates such shame, I think, that it makes it harder and harder and harder to admit that you did it. You know, that's right. You get to a point where there are, there's a lot of studies on that. Um, a book I read a few years ago, which I thought was brilliant, um, was about how police corruption gets started and how any bad behavior leads to worse behavior. 
And the yeah. book was, it's, it's really well written and very well researched was called Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me, which is my joke of how does a politician ap apologize? Well, mistakes were made. But not by me. But not you, by me, yeah. And have, it's about- email, uh, email us that book, I'd love to see it. Sure, um, I'll, I'll put that in my notes here. I'll, see, I'll send you these notes. I'm just taking random notes based on what you're saying. Um, in the point in this book, which I think is like radically exactly what you're saying, is that you every day we have moral decisions that we have to make. And if a cop at one point fakes evidence in order to convict somebody, usually it's because he or she thinks the person's guilty, they're convinced they're guilty and they can't find a legal way to prove it, they do that once. In order to maintain their balance, they have to justify it to themselves. And once they have done that, the next step becomes easier and easier and easier. And what happened to me when I read this book was all of a sudden there was no escape from all my internal justifications for every single behavior I had. Like it was horrendous for like about a month because I went, oh my God, Shelly, you, you pretend you're doing this for some altruistic or whatever, but really, I'm full of ulterior motive, like you can't not hear it anymore. And that was on an individual basis. But if you spread this out to collective um, shame yeah. avoidance, right? So to me, at, at this stage, there, there's a lot of things like that, all, all these sort of studies and ideas. And it's in my consciousness, they're just like, and, and, and that puts it in a position where it's, it's not able to be effectively communicated in, in a large scale way quite yet. Because I, I think you have to have sort of one or two simple ideas and, and then be able to show it visibly. You know, let's, let's be clear <clears throat> that without video camera, without, iPhones, Black Lives Matter would not happen. Yeah. You know, even when Black Lives Matter started, what, four years ago, I think- It started in Ferguson. Right. Oh, that's when Black Lives Matter, okay. And That's even then, there was major, the majority of Americans didn't support it, right? And it's, as you say, in Ferguson, when there's a complaint and they come out to complain that this is not right and this is not fair, the police get scared, so they shoot at them. So they beat them up and then you get this escalation. And um, if you take Trayvon Martin, well, there was a lot of protest also. The person who killed them got away with it. So you get, okay, we protest, you get beat up, da, da, da. Freddie Gray, it's the same. There were protests in Baltimore, one after the other, one after the other. And you said, oh, there's political unrest, the social unrest. They're dangerous, it's dangerous. Well, and I think a number of people voted Trump because he was against these, this dangerous unrest. And nobody went any further and went, wait, wait a second, wait a second. What's going on with this unrest? Well, they're burning their own people's houses down and burning their own people's stores, their own people. Like nobody was unpacking any, but what do you mean their own people? Aren't you all Americans? 
What do you mean their own people? Like, and, and why are they so angry? Well, let's look at that. You know, like none of that, if they're just dangerous people, we can't let this happen. We need law and order. And there's these reflexes of fear that are so easily triggered that it's that the, the, the thing about you can't have a dialogue with somebody because their fear reflex, which turns it into attack reflex, right? It's like, this is beyond human. This is animalistic. Nobody's stopping to think, wait a second. I had a really violent thought there. What was that about? Like, I mean, the whole thing that makes relationships work, the ability to look at the relationship and say, is this really what we want? Is not happening. Like the human part of humanity, which is the ability to reflect about what's going on is not happening, right? That's what I think. And, and I guess when it, I would like to see us able to reflect, like today, we've just been reflecting about what's happening and taking our own responses and then going beyond our own response and what does this mean? That's what to me this conversation is about. Thank Even you. though I wanted us to have a specific purpose at the beginning because I like order. Easy. Those well-formed positive goals. Oh, I've been trained. It's all these decades of NLP. Yeah. Those yeah. are absolutely right. But I want to add, when you talk about law and order, it is so bizarre because the African-American community says that's what we're demonstrating for, law and order. We get no law, we get no order. Yeah, yeah. And I'd like to order a chicken sandwich to go if we're on orders, yeah, so. <laughs> um, you know what, which reminds me, which reminds me, this is very serious and earnest stuff. And we also have to find a way to lighten it up. And Kathleen, all the way through the course, you made us lighten it up, right? And occasionally one of us or another of us lost the lightness. And I think we need to find some kind of way to, it, it's like a story. It's gonna have waves of emotional intensity. And I think we need to have all of the skills around us to rescue each other so that we can keep on going, you know? We have to keep ourselves in the zone, in the flow, uh, fluid. Yeah. And if we had a sense of what what is the nature of the conversations, you know, rather than necessarily finding the single solution that will be the answer forever, but how to begin to have these community conversations that not only involves multiple contradictory points of view, but um, multiple very different types of solutions that that all have to be part of the weave. That's where I, I am with it. I mean, there's no single perspective that could possibly make a dent in, in these century old unconscious pathologies. And my, my objective is that if people whose profession is to help people change, people change their mind and their, uh, their behavior and to go to higher levels, if we talk about this and we create a space for it, then we can encourage more like-minded people to, to listen, to take into account. It's gonna travel inside of themselves. And you know, there are people who come and they'll take a transformative racism journey and then they'll be inspired to continue. And 
yeah, I want to, I want to inspire a wave that begins. It's generative and it grows and it involves more people and it involves them deeper. And there are multiple ways in and one way in is conversation. And once again, what I'm really interested in is how can we have conversations that stimulate um, the helping professions, you know, therapists and coaches to say, oh, this is something I want to open myself to. I want to start to unpack it, to look at it. And if they, if they, if we are present in what we do in the present in the work we do with other people, and this is an integral part of it, it'll help others to change. I come back to what you said, Stephen. It's not about saying, okay, this is the part of the course where we're going to do racism. But oh, I've done my racism course now. I'm done now. Yeah. Check that box. Yeah. Um, but as it comes up, it's it, that it's that it's integrated in it because it is a way of looking at the world where there are there are these isms that you may have, and have you looked at how they are limiting and damaging to you, not just to the person who gets them, but to you. And, and for me, that's, that's the path I'd like to, to explore so that we're contributing in a generative way and that other people are continuing to a generative way to a, a collective movement, a collective change. It's not one person and it's not interpersonal. It is interpersonal and individual and collective all at the same time. That's it.